So we just heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. Tony read the parable of the Good Samaritan, and this is one of the most, just one of the most beautiful parables that Jesus tells, isn't it? And it's, it's one of my favorites because it's got this great sort of judo move in it where the lawyer says, like, he's trying to get out, he, he's trying to justify himself, right? So he has, he's trying to trick Jesus. What's the summation of the law? Jesus says, uh, the, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then the lawyer's kind of like, wow, this guy gets it. That's a really good answer. And then he's like, wait, did I just say that out loud? I need to justify myself. And he says, well, really, who is your neighbor? And now he's getting into lawyer territory, uh, Jewish lawyer territory. They like to kind of, well, who is your neighbor, really? Is it the person who lives next to you? Is it your kin? Is it people of a similar sort of tribe and affinities? It's not these people. It's got... So they like to parse out that kind of stuff. So he wants to justify himself. He wants to still look smart before whoever is assembled here. Jesus takes this and he, he spins it around on him. He tells this big story. And then at the very end of it, he says in verse 38, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And so as the story unfolds, you're kind of, you kind of forget about the victim. You sort of imagine like the priest walking by, the Levite walking by, and then the Samaritan. You kind of identify with the Samaritan. All of a sudden, Jesus switches it around and he asks you to identify with the victim. Now think about the whole story you just heard from the victim's point of view. Which one of those three people was a neighbor to that guy? And you notice what the lawyer says. He doesn't say the Samaritan. He says the one who showed him mercy. He doesn't want to say the Samaritan. Because <laughs> Jews and Samaritans don't have a good time together, right? So he says, the one who showed him mercy. So he, but he forces the lawyer to acknowledge that it's the Samaritan who's a good neighbor. And then, so then Jesus now flips that back on this, the lawyer and says, now you go and do that for other people. You act like that merciful person to others. You go and do likewise. In this parable, in this parable, we have the greatest moral example of any, the, uh, uh, how do I say this? The greatest moral example in any of Jesus' parables is here in the Good Samaritan. So Jesus tells a lot of stories and he'll, you know, this guy acted right in this situation versus this guy. But this is the one guy who really does it right. I mean, Jesus is saying, do what this person did in order to be the good neighbor, which is the summation of the law. Right? So the Good Samaritan is, in Jesus' mind, the embodiment of love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus wants, he wants a lawyer, he wants us, God wants all of us to be like this. And I think we want to be like this. We want to be good Samaritans. We want to be good neighbors. So I wonder why it is that I feel as I read this story more like I'm, I'm probably more like the priest or the Levite and less like I'm like the good Samaritan. What is getting in our way? What is getting in the way of us being this good Samaritan, this Christ-like, this good neighbor? What is getting in the way of us being like this? They might say, well, sin. Sin is getting in the way. Well, I actually don't think that sin is the thing here. I mean, maybe the priests and the Levites were had sin in their mind when they hurried away. Jesus doesn't tell us this. There's been a lot of speculation 
on their motives here. Um, and some of them are, are really like really identifiable. I mean, the priest and the Levite, why are they going from outside of Jerusalem back through to Jerusalem through this pretty dangerous spot on the road? Apparently, like um, in, in the land of Judea, there were good spots for ambushes, and that's where ambushes happened. So why would they be making this trip? They probably had some kind of service to do at the temple. It was probably their turn. They, they, they were on a rotation. So they, they had like paused everything back home. They're making this trek. They've got to stay ceremonially pure in order to do this, to fulfill their service. If they become impure, they can't do the service. It leaves the temple group scrambling. And now they've got to take off work or whatever back home again. So they don't want to... Also, you don't know if this guy's really hurt. It could be a trap. This is, again, a kind of a hot spot ambush place. So there's a couple, there's many reasons why it's not necessarily sin that the priest and Levi didn't stop for this guy. So what are we looking at then? If we're looking at something that's not sin, but you can't really see it then, right? It's not sin, but you can't, can't really see it. So here's what I suggested is, if, if you've got the taking notes, this is one of the things here. I, I would suggest that what is keeping them from being good neighbors, from being like the Good Samaritan, are these things called uh, unexamined defaults, default settings, unexamined defaults that are habits, unexamined habits, unexamined values that are bent around ourselves. Self-serving things that we do that we don't maybe realize that we do. Self-serving values that we live by that we've never actually stopped to examine. Now, the Bible has kind of an unusual word for this, a kind of a catch-all word, and that's idols. Unexamined, self-serving Habits and values that become our go-to, our default for what we do and why we do it. Unexamined default. So what are, ha- what are idols? They're these things, that they're habits and values. Idols aren't just one thing or the other. They're why we do things, they're what we do. They're unexamined largely. They just, they work. We like them. They're our defaults. They're what we go to. And they're always though, they look like they're outside of us, but they're really about us. We accumulate them for our own benefit and for our own good. I think there's three kinds of idols. I think there's heart idols, head idols, and hand idols. So heart idols are things that we emotionally love, things that, we get, that you get passionate about, right? So you know people in your life where if you bring up certain topics, they're going to get red-faced within the next five minutes, right? So they get passionate about those things. Or they're things that uh, you get scared at the prospect of losing, and not just like scared as in like, I really don't want to, but what is my life if that's gone? What is my life? So heart idols are things like, uh, I, I just, I really want to be a success. I really want to, I've got to keep that relationship. I, I need to never fail. I need to never show that I'm a failure in any way. Probably the classic story of this in the Bible is in 2 Samuel 17. There's a guy named Ahithophel. He's a counselor to the kings and he's the number one counselor. Right, so all the kings take his advice, and he's a fantastic counselor. One day he gives counsel, and the king takes somebody else's advice. 
So Ahithophel, you know, calmly closes his book, puts it in his bag, says bye to everybody, goes home, sets his affairs in order, and hangs himself. He had to be that number one guy, and when that was gone, what was life? Life was done. It's a hard idol. Another is head idols. These are things we love intellectually. So our ideals. What does it mean to be, uh, what is our idea of what is a successful or failure sort of person? Uh, the vision that we have for our lives. What is your idea of a good or bad person? What, are you a good person? Who's a bad person? Right? If you do that, are you a, bad, a dumb person or a smart person? You want to do certain things so that you're a smart person and not a dumb person. So that you're a good person and not a bad person. So that you're a successful person and not a failed person. We see a lot of this kind of stuff in our pass through 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about these strongholds, who are, uh, which are arguments, opinions, and thoughts. And they're manifest in boasts. Look at what I've done. Look at what we've accomplished. Look at my pedigree and my resume. This is what a good and successful person is. These are head idols. We also use, those, we use our, uh, these head idols to judge other people a lot of times. It's sort of, they boast us, judge you. And then hand idols, these are just things that we love to use. So the obvious ones here, drugs, alcohol, any sort of addicting substance or, or practice, uh, but also accomplishments and failures that define us. So something that you've done that you don't feel you can get out from under. You're always going to be, you know, the class clown. You're always going to be the one who, who tripped at the five-yard line. You're always going to be that. Or also hand idols could be a technology that we put our, our hope in. Technology that embodies our sense of, I could do it if only that this, if I just had this. Psalm 20, verses 7 and 8. So 3,000 years ago, some people trust in chariots and horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Right? So that was, that was technology back then. And they were saying, our hope for our nation, for our strength, is in these chariots and horses. So these are different kinds of idols. And I don't think that they're all, they're not cleanly separated. They're all sort of merged together there. But I think that those are different ways to think about what idols are. How do idols become our default settings? They're really useful, right? What is God always telling you to do? He's always telling you to trust him. He's saying, have a little faith. Trust me. Trust me. Moloch is saying, hey, you want, I, gotta, I can do this quick. I can do this quick. You give me one of your children, I'll give you those crops. Bada boom, bada bing, we're done. Right? Very useful in a pinch. The, the, gods, the other god, false gods are very, very uh, eager to make a deal with us. And they, they work, right? Short term. They make the pain go away. They make me feel pretty. They make me feel strong. They validate my sense of self-pity or they validate my idea that I'm really smart. They, 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 they shore me up and they, they give me good feelings. They're useful. And then, of course, we use them. Idols are, whether they're substantially addictive or not, they're addictive. We like them. They work for us. They're the devil we know. Literally, kind of. And as we grow more reliant on them, as they worm their way deeper into our lives, they become less examinable. Less examinable. And that is a problem. 
That is a scary situation to be in. Imagine that you're in a uh, scary movie. What kind of scary movie do you want to be in? Do you want to be in a scary movie where you're in a house with a monster that you can see or with a monster that you can't see? With a monster that you can see so that even though it's horrifying, you at least know where it is and, and how to run from it or how to trip it or, right? Or with a monster that you can't see. Maybe it's right there, right? You, you just never know where it is. So you've got this big problem and you can't examine it. The problem, uh, this, I heard this, this great quote, the problem that you can't talk about now is two problems. The problem that you can't examine, the idol that you can't examine, now you have two problems. So what we're discovering here is that the self has acquired, the self has acquired defenses against the love of Christ. And the self has embedded those defenses deeply in our lives. And we want to get rid of them. We want Christ and Christ wants us. So how do we examine them? How do idols stay unexamined? How do idols stay unexamined? Now I want to tell you another story related to the Good Samaritan story. So in the 1970s, you guys remember the 1970s, uh, sociology was a big, was, was really coming of age. And Princeton Seminary did a sociological study on it, some of its seminarians. And so they gathered about 50 or 60 of the seminary students. So these are, these are graduate level students training to be pastors. Now the setup for this study was uh, ostensibly they're asking them, what makes a good minister? So to, to, that, that's sort of the, the goal of the, the stated goal of the project. So they give them a personality test and they, get, they have them take a religious background quiz because they want to know a number of variables for you know, what's about to happen. They, you know, so personality, background, um, they, they then give them an assignment. So they hand them a sheet of paper and on the sheet of paper is the story that uh, Tony just read, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. They said, we want you to give an extemporaneous, that means off the cuff, uh, talk on the parable of the Good Samaritan. But we can't do it here in this building because it's under construction in these places. So you got to go to this other building. There's a map on the back and it'll show you where to go to give this talk on the Good Samaritan. And then, and, and now the study splits. So they split into three groups, the high hurry group, medium hurry group, and low hurry group. So the high hurry group, they say, and you really need to get over there right away. They're already waiting for you. They're, behind, they're running behind schedule. We're getting backed up. So you need to get over there right away. Medium hurry group, we're right on time. If you get, if you, if you get over there, we won't fall behind. We won't get backed up. We'll be there right on time. Low hurry group, we're ahead of schedule. You should probably head over there, but take your time. It's okay. We're, we're doing fine. So on the way there, as they follow the map, there's an alley about four or five feet wide, runs between two of the buildings. And in this alley, there's a guy laying on the ground, groaning, coughing, clearly in some kind of distress, right? Like, so it's a, an exact replica in that location of the Good Samaritan, which they're now is on their mind, and they're already beginning to think of, what am I going to say as I go over there and do this extemporaneous talk? So, did they stop and help this guy? 
What sort of person stopped and helped this guy? What sort of religious background? You know, it's Princeton Seminary, so they got probably people in seminary who are Buddhists or something. I don't know. I mean, they got, you know, everybody there. But is it, you know, is it Roman Catholics? Is it Baptists? Is it what sort of person? What sort of personality? What sort of religious background? They found that the only variable that mattered as to whether you stopped and helped a guy or not was whether you were in the high hurry group, medium hurry group, low hurry group. Only 10% of the high hurry group stopped. Uh, 40% of the medium hurry group stopped, 60% of the low hurry group stopped. Now, why did 90% of those in the high hurry group walk like the priest and the Levite right by this guy? And, and after it was all done, after they gave their talk, they, they did a debriefing with, with each of the students. And they said that... Uh, Many of those who had moved by the guy who were in that, that, they walked by him group, they noticed the victim, but it was only way after, during the debriefing, that they thought, you know what, he probably was in some kind of distress. And, and here's, the, here's the line, the, the quote from the study that I just find astonishing and so helpful. They did not perceive, they did not perceive the scene in the alley as an occasion for an ethical decision, which is, scholar talk, but try, try to parse that out. They did not perceive that scene in the alley as an occasion for an ethical decision. In other words, they didn't see it as an opportunity to be a good neighbor. They just didn't even see it. Because why? Because they were hurrying. They didn't see it as an opportunity to be a good neighbor, and so they weren't a good neighbor. I was reading a, a, a book recently in preparation for this. This is the first of three sermons we're going to be talking about hurrying. So there's a book called Crazy Busy by Kevin DeYoung. He says in there, the greatest danger with busyness is that there may be greater dangers you never have time to consider. The greatest danger with busyness is that there may be greater dangers that you never have time to consider. And I think what we're discovering is that idols stay invisible because we don't take the time to look for them because we're too busy. The visibility of our idols is directly related to the pace of our lives, to the speed of our lives, to the noise of our lives. And they are hidden by our hurry. Our idols are hidden by our hurry. The famous um, Christian spiritual formation writer Dallas Willard uh, apparently tells his, would tell his students when they say, like, what, is the, what, is, what do we need to do to be spiritually healthy? And he would say, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry. And they'd all write it down. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry. And look up, okay, what else? And he would say, that's it. That's it. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry. There is nothing else. We see this throughout Scripture. Now, here's a couple of things that the Bible tells us repeatedly, regularly, about how we ought to be living our lives. Be still. Be still. Psalm 46.10. Do you remember this? Be still in what? Do you see the connection? That apart from stillness, we won't see who the true God is. That there is 
Be still in order to know the true God and who He is. Be quiet. Isaiah 30.15, thus says the Lord, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. If we want to hear God, what do we have to be? We have to be quiet. We have to be still to see Him and know Him. We have to be quiet to hear the Lord. And then, how many times does the Bible say, wait? And I'm always interested in how Scripture says, wait for the Lord. And it's almost always attached to, be strong. And let your heart take courage. See, you need strength and courage to wait in this world. To wait for the Lord. We've got to be still to see the true God. We've got to be quiet to hear the true God. We've got to wait for the Lord, or else are we following the true God? Right? That's what you're waiting for, is for Him. And you follow Him. That's what we're trying to do, right? Why we're here this morning, because we want to follow Him. We don't want to lead Him. <laughs> we want Him to lead us. So we have Bible knowledge, we have good morals, we have church participation, and, and you're good people, I'm a good person, we're all good. Clap each other on the back a little bit here. Uh, but if we don't take time to develop an unhurried spirit, there are going to be things in our lives that we don't see. And those things will prevent us from following Christ in the way of being good neighbors. You know, how often, I think, do I perceive that I am in an occasion for an ethical decision? I fail to see that I'm in a place where I could be a good neighbor to somebody. Which means I don't really see what's going on. I don't see what's really happening there. I'm rushing, and because I'm rushing, I default to my habits and my values, which have been shaped by my self-interest over 40 years. Right. So my idols are at work in my life, keeping me like me. I don't want to be like me. I want to be like Jesus. So let me make a final suggestion before we wrap up. Build some speed bumps. Right? If you want to slow down, nothing gets you to slow down like dragging your axle on the concrete for a split second, right? After you come off of a, a speed bump a little too fast. Build some speed bumps into your life. Some time every day to be in attentive silence alone with God. Some time daily to be in attentive silence with God. Some time weekly to examine your life together with God. In other words, daily devotions and a weekly Sabbath. We'll talk more about that later as this mini-series progresses. And we, we, know, we, intuit, we know this, right? There's some things that you have to, you have to slow down if you want to go faster. There's some things where you have to slow down if you want to go faster. Our idols are hidden by our hurry. And so we do not perceive the occasions that we are in. And I think that is what is getting in the way for a lot of us of being this going and doing likewise, being this good neighbor. 
So this morning, let's, let's close in prayer. Let's ask the Lord to give us hearts to understand and eyes to see, ears to hear, and then the courage to slow down and look for the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to be together, to think about these things together. Lord, we do, we do want to be like Jesus. We love Jesus. We love ourselves too, but truthfully, we, we want to be like Christ. And so I ask, Lord, that you would help us to see where in our life we can put some speed bumps and make them honest to goodness speed bumps and not just token gestures, not just another thing on our to-do lists, but really a space in our lives for our hearts to open up to you, for you to draw us to Christ, to set us free from the habits and values that have become our defaults, the self wrapped up in the self, keeping us from the kind of life of love that we long to, we long to be led into. Help us to be still, to be quiet, and to wait on you. And give us the courage and strength that we need to do this. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.